Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the AIA Austin Committee on the Environment. The committee is committed to providing the architectural and construction community with fellowship and resources that help you deliver healthy, safe, and sustainable environments for people. There's nothing cooler than being dedicated to preserving the Earth's capability of sustaining a shared high quality of life. Check out more at AIAAustin.org. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science to the Building Science Podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay. Hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin with Positive Energy here, as always, with Miguel, my hey, sidekick. Hey, guys. I'm also here with Ben Brown with Ames Design Build. Say hello, Ben. Hi. I'm as enthusiastic. I just don't know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and we just had a project meeting that spiraled down into some really useful discussions, I think, or at least very interesting, so I wanted to capture those. So this is sort of an impromptu podcast. And I'm going to state that the theme is uh, transforming the way we think about and deliver conditioned space to society. And Ben, one of the things I want to start out with is you just had this metaphor of uh, cars versus houses. And, yeah. You know, we talk, I've talked and the listeners have heard me the VRF air conditioning being the accelerator pedal versus just the ignition key. But you took that a little farther. Could you repeat that one about decisions on cars? Yeah. You know, it's... We have such technical knowledge of homes that I think we kind of take for granted that, um, or we think that buyers know how to make value decisions mm-hmm. across the choices that we offer, right? But the way that I can kind of remove that that knowledge premium is to imagine myself going to buy a car, which I know nothing about. And I think about sitting down and, you know, the options that are presented to me. And it's, you know, do you want leather seats or cloth seats? Um, but no one's ever said to me, you know, what type of mass airflow sensor do you want? Like what, what quality and what should the tubing be on that? Right. And so, you know, it, it, it was kind of impactful for me to think about why do I sit there with a client and say, you can have flex duct or you can have sheet metal duct and here's the cost Delta and here's the trade-offs, right? There is a builders are uniquely positioned to make a decision along a, a value spectrum, right? Absolutely. Um, and I always say it's it's most telling if you watch a builder build their own house, right? Because that's where you really see where they assign value on the many many decisions. Um, and you know, I would spend less money on tile in my own home, and I would make sure I had sheet metal duct that had uh, that was tested and that didn't leak, right? And so, um, you know, it's it's. I feel like that we need to guide our clients better because I, I'm not, I, I'm never in a position where I'm, I'm presenting those options to a client and thinking they don't really have the sophistication to make this decision. I really need to be making this form like a car company does for me and a mass airflow sensor. Mm-hmm. But there's there's resistance to that because market, you know, you you exist to make money, and if you're all your competition is doing flex duct and duct board radial, you know, like highly intestinal, what Allison Bale calls it, the Kraken. Yeah. You know, and we see these on high-end custom homes. We see these duct systems that don't belong in anyone's home. Right. And yet, if that's normal and you go up a notch, you're spending money where they're not and you don't compete. Right. And where it's really problematic, you know, on the custom side of our company, 
I get to sit with a client and I get to take them through the budget and I get to explain to them all the assumptions that we've made and why and I get to give them options. But in our spec division, I don't, right? We've got to make a decision at the beginning on these things and then we have to go and we aren't there when the buyer walks through with their real estate agent to explain why this house costs $500 a square foot and the one down the street costs $450 a square foot, right? So it's a a much harder area to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but we still believe that that's important. And so we have to figure out, number one, how do we market, right? And how do we how do we reveal that there's that quality there and why we've chosen it? Um, and number two, how do we create market demand where the buyers are asking for this instead of finding out about it when they walk through one of our homes? You know, because if, if theoretically, if you're going to sell a home near a, a builder that's not making his decisions. If you put more money into your mechanical systems, there's less money in finishes, right? So when people walk into the two finished homes, there's an experience difference. One of the homes has more money in finishes and one of them doesn't. And so, you know, apart from finding a a brilliant interior designer, which I think we have, you know, that can make less expensive finishes look great, you've got to figure out how, how to have a customer ask for that, right? Ask for good indoor air quality, ask for energy efficiency, ask for all of the benefits of a well-designed and installed mechanical system. And, you know, this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg, right? It's not just mechanical systems. It's, you know, there's so, this is such a large discussion about how do you create a sophisticated market that wants what's good and wants the thing, wants the right point on the value spectrum across all things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you you talked also about, so when you talk about the right point on the value spectrum, we are, as, as biological entities, highly visual creatures. Yeah. Our vision is our you know, prime senses, prime input, our prime uh, evaluator of quality around us. Hence, you know, the, the, the metaphor that us building science geeks say, you know, we're building movie sets for our yeah. clients as though the cameras are rolling, but they're not actually inhaling that stuff. Yeah. And so you mentioned, well, to answer your question, how do we change the market? This podcast is our humble attempt, right? We recognize that it's like society is hungry and it doesn't know that food is available or something. So you mentioned indoor air quality as uh, fundamentally different than like a roof leak. Right. Could you talk about that briefly? Yeah. You know, and this is kind of the dirty behind the scenes part of spec building. Which is why I appreciate you saying it. Right. But... You know, as a spec builder, um, there's a there's a financial analysis that you go through that you know. Or you should go through. <laughs> you should, yeah. You have to, right? That's you're not going to be a spec builder long if you don't do it. But in this in this allocation of, of a finite budget to build a product, you look at the you look at the envelope or the, the you know the moisture control layers as this is uh, if I if I cheap here, this looks like a warranty chain down the line. And that's on my dime. And then you look at indoor air quality as if I cheap on indoor air quality, this is a health problem for the people that live in it in 10 years. And that's on their dime when they have those medical bills, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a very hard um, decision to make to say, you know what? Um, I care about that as the spec builder. That's important to me, even though it will never have a financial implication for me personally, 
And also, it may... It actually might have a negative financial implication. An immediate negative, right? Because I'm going to spend more money on this, but I probably can't sell it for more yet because the market doesn't reward that yet, right? And so, you know, it, it starts to get down to an integrity check. It starts to get down to, you know, a lot of things that are not a financial decision, which, you know, is a very hard move to make. It's a scary move to make personally, you know, like, I mean, I'm, you know, I have to make the decision, uh, oftentimes with personal money. Um, and you know, that's the, that's the gut check in the middle of the night when no one's around. And that's honestly, uh, it's, it's not always an easy one to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And thank you for being candid about it. But it occurs to me, we introduced you as Ben Brown with Ames Design Build. We didn't talk about your role at Ames Design Build. What, what is that role? And why would it be your personal money? But tell us your role first. Yeah, so um, I, I think my technical title right now is Director of Operations. Okay. Uh, I'm a stakeholder in the company. Um, and it is, uh, it's kind of a, a startup environment of a bunch of really talented people that are trying to span both the spec world and the custom world. Uh, and, I, you know, that, that's, that's great in that we try to we, we call it a one-way valve where we try to let the quality and the science of the custom world inform the spec world and we try to let the schedule and budget you know focus of the spec world inform the custom world but then not pollute each other with the <laughs> you know the the kind of the downsides of the two but well said, um yeah. you know yeah so my money in that it's you know i'm a stakeholder in this company but Got you know it. i'm also an investor i take my wife and i take money and, and we invest in several projects at a time um, hoping to get a reward, right? And so, you know, I can tell you that when I was purely a custom builder, um, the, the impact of things like budget and schedule overruns were, you know, felt in terms of, of a displeasure from a client. Um, it's a whole different feeling when it's your money, right? And that's that's something that um, it's it's acute, and it is it's something that you have to you have to be able to be be kind of remove yourself from the emotion of that this is my money and go back to you know what's the like what's the right thing and what's the do I do I truly believe that this is good and that the market will want this when they know about it. Um, and if I do, then there's times we got to write an emotion and say, we're doing this and uh, it may cost me money or I may not make as much money, but mm-hmm. it, it, I, I do believe it's worth it. And I think your podcast, you know, I mean, I have people that come up and I had a guy come up to me in a restaurant the other day. I was wearing a, a Reisinger hat and he said, hey, are you, uh, do you work for Matt Reisinger? And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I used to, I know Matt, he's great. I, to think that a, a guy that talks about building science would have a following that would come up and talk to you like you you know they recognize someone from a TV show it's you know it's that's that gives me hope yeah I, I agree I think the same thing I come to clients like you we were just at Forgecraft for architecture around the corner and we start to realize oh the industry's about to pivot people are starting to use ERVs and then we walk around our neighborhood here in South Austin and you see all these spec homes getting built you realize that really what's happening is those builders are just phone callers and the skill all resides with their B-grade trades or lower. And the industry, you know, it's like a tip of the industry maybe is about to pivot. Yeah. Um, There is some industry, there's some shifts though that's interesting. There's a there's a, a paradigm that's being touted that the 8,000 square feet is the new 14,000 square feet. And that's a weird one, right? But we see certain 14,000 square foot homes orphaned on the market right now. Mm-hmm. Um, people are starting to say, we want smaller, better quality, better square footage than bigger, right? And that's 
that's a telling trend that I think and hope will continue because as you do that, yeah. you start to be able to pack better into smaller mm-hmm. and be rewarded for it. Right. Um, you know, I, the it's still it's still at a point where you know below two hundred dollars a square foot, it's really hard to have this conversation. Oh, absolutely. Right, and so what where I want to, I feel like the you know the highest end, the thousand dollar square foot builds have had this level of attention to the important things and you know the like you all's designs for a while now. Mm-hmm. I think it's moved into the five millions. I think you know we're seeing it in spec homes now that we're you know that are around the two million dollar price point. What what do you mean by it in then? Like good design, metal ductwork. Yeah. So actual mechanical design, right? Like that's that's a big step in a yeah. two million dollar spec home that has not historically been there. I mean that that simple thing, as crazy as it is, mm-hmm. verification testing is another one. Pre sheet rock um, verification is right. Well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not using flex duct. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like. Uh, all of those things are are pointedly absent at a spec point that is you know below two million. Yeah, we're now going to try to introduce it at a, down to a, like a one six, and it's scary, which is a crazy thing to say, right? But um, it is, and so the next thing. But the nice thing is, is there's there's this filtering down. What's going to be very interesting is right. how do you do this in a tract home, right? How do you do this on a mass scale? Uh, and I don't know the answer, and I'm glad I'm not the one asking. But that yeah, out, you, but. you are you're involved. I mean, you're a smart guy. You're, you're involved in thinking of the answer. And following this, right? So panelized construction is strongly emerging. Yeah. And panelized construction is, um, you know, the the architect's version of that is something like saying, um, everyone engaging everything early, which they also called integrated project delivery or integrated yeah. de- integrated design, yeah. right? And so the mechanical system is still left out of this. And we've talked many times, at least internally here and over beers, about the, the tyranny or the hegemony of enclosurism. If, if you're aimed and you say, I want to up my game, usually you mean, I want to up my enclosure game. Right. right. And there are builders out there, they are, they are the cat's meow on enclosures. And they forget that the client is far more intimate with what came through the air filter than what didn't come through the water control air. Right. right. And it isn't just problematic at that level either. It's, you know, the building science world as a whole is very much focused on the enclosure itself. And just as important... It's visual too. Right. It's visual. Yeah. And and just as important as that, like Christoph's saying, is the mechanical system. And just as important as that is... The the, integration. That's where I was going. Right. The integration and the ability for this to exist in places like tract homes. Like the systems thinking at that level is just as important as thinking about the control layers. Right. And and it's just not getting a lot of attention right now. (laughs) I go back to the strongest driving force in the market is money. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether that's depressing to you or exciting to you, it goes back to that in my mind as the most powerful driving force. And so mm-hmm. what I think we have to figure out is the, the indoor air quality argument is an argument towards personal health, which is an expense that's completely disconnected to this building industry, right? Mm-hmm. So is there, an, is there a way to somehow link or demonstrate what the, what the healthcare cost per year, the impact is? And make it visual. I mean, the right. answer is in terms of if you believe in peer-reviewed research, right? Where right. There's, there's actually seems to be some skepticism on scientific inquiry right now right. Right, in our culture. But if you be- believe in peer-reviewed research as having 
valid results, then you can say definitely, statistically speaking, for large population sets, if I create these conditions indoors, more people will be healthy. But unfortunately, you should never say to an actual flesh and blood human in front of you, if you live here, you'll be healthier. Because right. they could have you know genetic predisposition for right. asthma. In, yeah. you know. It's like a financial advisor promising returns, right? right. <laughs> exactly. you know, it's like past performance does not indicate if you... And so... I, and it's also, that's kind of a, a, a non-sequitur argument where, okay, let's say that we identified that $20 billion a year that's spent on healthcare wouldn't be spent on healthcare if we could introduce better indoor air quality. It's probably more like trillions. Okay, so <laughs> is the healthcare industry going to give the building industry a trillion dollars? We hope so. Right? We could see, we could imagine. <laughs> no, probably unlikely. Yeah, I mean, that would be amazing. But they, but they, could, they could say, oh, Ben, you have a MERV-13 filter. And we, which doesn't mean anything unless you know your air distribution system leakage is low. Yeah. But you've go, you got your um, air distribution system leakage checked, and it's less than two cfm per hundred square feet. And you have a MER thirteen filter, and you live in a humid climate with dedicated dehumidification. We're going to bump your rate down. That's not because you're also yeah, probably eating healthier and exercising because you, you're having the same. You know, you've heard yes. of, have you heard of the kale belt, like the Rust Belt. No, the kale belt is like Portland, Seattle, Austin, okay, San New Francisco, York. New York. It's like any place where you can go easily find a nice kale salad. <laughs> <laughs> When you think about, like, you didn't drive here in your truck engine, truck chassis, truck engine thing. You drove here in a truck, and it's right. one thing. We're, we need to think about the integration of the mechanical system into the enclosure, into the framing package, as one installation that you're pulling off and making it streamlined. Yeah. Okay, that's my point. Yeah. I love the idea of panelized. I love the idea of packaging design. And the, the, what I believe is that great design... Um, is great design, and there's this there's this negative connotation to uh, repetitiveness at a custom or a high level, right? Everyone's think this is mm-hmm. this is mine. It was designed perfectly for me, but most of my spec homes, the central planning of the kitchen and the living space is pretty similar because the market knows what it wants and the market rewards a certain thing, right? So Teslas all look alike, right? <laughs> it's a perfect point. My wife. We go to New York City for Fashion Week, for Bridal Fashion Week, right? And the first two days, she's she's picking dresses to purchase for next year's inventory that are, are right down the middle. They're the perfect dress. She knows they're going to sell. By the third day, she's looked at a 1,000 dresses. And the only thing that draws her attention is the weird, the unique, right? And I think that we suffer from that same thing as designers. We've done this before, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how great this design is. I'm a little bored. And I want to start messing around Whoa. and I want to start curving walls mm-hmm. and I want to start doing things because what what is amazing and what works no longer interests or holds my attention and I start to devalue it. I start to say if it's not exciting to me, it's because it's some, there's something wrong with it, right? Not there's something so great about this that it just should be reproduced and there's value in that right Mm -hmm. and so people got to live somewhere right well yeah so basically it's interesting it's like the in the scientific community there's something called researcher bias and researcher bias can be manifest as you've seen this data so many times it's no longer of interest to you so you focus on the little nuances which can be good but in an architect's role that's fascinating it's first time you really got me thinking this way it could still be beautiful to the client and, and give them the joy and the thrill of beauty every yeah. day. But to the designer 
themselves. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, it, this is the same old thing. Right. What's my, what can I do now? And what about, what about the role then of architecture or architects, the architect profession in this topic of delivering conditioned space to society? Is it, is it really just devolving? And I, I do think of it as devolving into the beauty role. Right, the Vitruvian trident, right, Fumitas, Attilitas, and Venistas, right? It's not just beautiful. It's got to be functional and, and utilitarian, right? Yeah, so... Where, where is it going, architecture? You know, there's the, the term design-build is in the name of our company, uh, and that throws a lot of people off because they think we've got architects in-house, and we don't. All we're referring to is a contracting structure where you contract... It's a single point of contracting, and then we'll go out and we'll... we'll with you, interview architects, we'll pick the right one for your project, we'll go out and we'll pick consultants and we'll bring this team together, but you're contracting with the contractor who, you know, obviously there's a personal bias, but I think is in the best position to drive that bus um, and mm-hmm. balance all of the, the stakeholders' needs in a project. So I would say architects' role is is still integral and it's every bit as integral as all of the other stakeholders, right? I mean a great mechanical designer needs to be involved from day one because once you get a DD set that's 60% complete and there's no room for mechanical or, or, or you know, or ducts, then we start contortioning into something that doesn't really function because we don't have to go back and redesign the structure. Which is why flex duct is so convenient. Right. It lets you... demand water heaters. You don't have to think about where they need to go. Right. Typically. (laughs) So, you know, I would say, I don't think that there will ever be a time where architect's role is kind of relegated just to the pretty. Um, I think that... but, But the way that I think that architects can protect their role in this is to participate in this thing of get everybody in early, right? So when clients come to me, I say, get everybody in early. I think architects need to do the same thing. And that will, that will kind of reinforce and reestablish them as, look, you come to me first and you're going to get a great end result because whether you come to the builder first or you come to the architect first, or you come to the mechanical designer first, everybody's going to get together, get on one page and move forward. I think the, 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 rub on that is that's a lot for a client to commit to mm-hmm. on day one right yeah. is to build this big robust somewhat you know expensive team versus you know kind of wading into it slowly but it's going to mean that in the long run it's better more affordable but you know it's that it's it's that time preference of money it's a, it's a deferred yeah yeah cost right um and i think the way to get the market educated on that is just to continue to do what you guys are doing and talk about this, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not a new concept. Design Bill's been around for a long time. I mean, I remember when I was in commercial construction, we joked that it's actually build design because we go out and build whatever we want and then tell the architect to draw to match <laughs> what we built, right? And so, you know, that's, that's a negative um, approach to design build, but it's been around a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. So I liked that you connected it to um, short-term thinking, actually, yeah. and, and not just short-term thinking, but also, you know, I get it. A custom home or a spec, home, let's say, a custom home process. The custom home client, they might not really want to think about all the costs involved and all the complexity. So it's better to just just to sit across the table from an architect and look at lovely images and yeah. think about their dream home, and then the end result of that is a rolled-up cylinder of paper, and that unfortunately turns into a baton. Yeah. That gets handed off. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
And it results in trillions of dollars in healthcare costs. I mean, that, that model is... And so that's an interesting wow. thing. That's a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> but it's, in some sense, it's true. I mean, down the, the, the problems that arise because of that... Baton, yes. Right? Like, that's problematic inherently mm-hmm. because it's it's not everybody involved early. And it's, okay, now you've got it. I'm trying to remove my liability. And then the liability chains. Yeah. yeah. You know, again, I go back to the car, right? But can you imagine a person um, going to someone and say, design me a car, right? And then they take it to someone and say, build me this car. And then mm-hmm. they get in it and they go 70 miles an hour down the road. And they don't really know. They have a technical disparity. Of, you know, they don't know. Was the car <laughs> built well or the right way? I don't know. It's crazy, right? So yeah. if a house could go 80 miles an hour, or if, if, you could, if you could more readily quantify the health threat of a poorly built house... Mm-hmm. It would be a no-brainer, right? It's the same thing as, like, our insurance. If I, if I connect my Apple Watch to the insurance company's app and they see that I work out every day, it brings our rate down over time. And there are yeah. other incentives. An air quality monitor connected to your insurance app could do the exact same thing. Right, yeah. And it should and will. Um, you know, one of the things we talked before we started recording about positive energies, one of its stated goals is to exist long after I retire or yeah. die. And unfortunately, much of the mainstream building science expertise in our industry is associated with smart individuals. Right. There's not a lot of uh, institutions or small businesses trying to grow to offer this to the industry for forever. You know, and that short-term thinking is, is the tie-in. If you think about it now, like uh, positive energy has the hundred-year view. We're like hundred years from. Like, what are we influencing on project teams now that a hundred years from now will? Right, yield large results for society and just that thinking changes how we act and it gives us we talk, you talked about psychological you know decision making on how to spend your money it lets us actually kind of receive an implicit value of oh we're taking the long view here and it feels good because ultimately you want the money in your life to feel good in your life right. <laughs> yeah. just go directly But I'll also say there's this, even in my world, there's this desire to uh, kind of turn turn it into a process to make it more affordable or more predictable. The, the idea that this knowledge is concentrated in, a, in very smart individuals, um, that's because every time that we build a house, it requires immense amount of judgment and understanding of the system as a whole in order to deliver something effective, right? You can't just say... Um, here's here's this packaged HVAC design that you can put into any house because every house has different structural constraints. And, and so there still has to be a really smart person that navigates that, mm-hmm. right? I don't know that we'll, inle- until we get to panelized or modular, I don't know that we'll ever be able to get this um, process down to a point where any kind of, any standard technician can just plug and play, right? And I think that is part of the problem of how we get ourselves into problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we go in and we hire a, an HVAC installer that is not a designer, and they just do what they've always done, right? And, now, and then it doesn't work in the house because this house isn't the same house that they've always done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It takes someone that's going to – and it's, you know, it's the same thing as a builder, right? You, know, you talked about the, the GC who is just a, a phone caller. You need a GC that knows – how it all works together as a whole and can guide and, and, and get that to where it needs to be because, you know, the HVAC guy is not necessarily going to be 
giving it all of the thought and attention that it needs to get it where it, ultimately it performs the way we want it to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot of wishful thinking in that baton handoff chain. Yeah. It's, I found it very interesting thinking about the design-build model. Um, and when you go to an architect and you are now the point of contact with the client and then you hire the or you interview with the owner and you hire the architect... I wonder if there's any fundamental differences you've observed in how the architect-client relationship plays out. A lot, yeah. Um, And it's been really fun. It's been really telling, right? And wait, excuse me real quick. Is there someone from Ames present at at every design meeting with the architect? Or do you send them off on their own? Okay, so you At every meeting we have someone present. Um, And so we had to kind of, we had to actually write our own contracts to achieve this. And it's a three-party contract um, mm. because the standard AIA contract for this kind of setup, it, it, it said things like the, the work of the architect is for the exclusive benefit of the contractor. And that didn't feel good, right? Because, you know, you kind of want to say, hey, like this is, the, <laughs> this is the structure we're doing, but the architect's really, this is for your benefit, client. Yeah. And so our idea was, hey, let's all sit around a table and just put everything in the middle of the table and say, yeah, we all agree to this and we're all on the same team. And so we wrote our own contract to achieve that. Um, but one of the things that I try to establish is, look, I get to be the bad cop here and the architect doesn't have to be the bad cop, right? Like when there's a tough conversation to be had, um, that's going to be my job because I believe it's very important that the that the creative design process be free of conflict. And so when Ooh, the, that's fascinating. When the architect and the client are having to argue about whether this is a, an extra or you know where's my money because I sent you a bill, I feel like that 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 creates a a kind of a negative pressure on the the free creative process. And so I say to them, you guys design, I'll be the bad guy. I'll navigate all that. Uh, the good thing is, is there's very little of that come to find out, but that, that I think that's a benefit. The other part of this is I get to say to the architect, listen, I know how to do flush base, right? So if you want flush base, just say flush base and write an arrow pointing to a baseboard. You don't have to draw a detail. And it, what that does is it, it reduces the architect's needed deliverables because historically when they're just designing they don't know if when they are done, are these plans going to go to builder A and I have no idea and he has no idea or is it going to go to, you know, a premier builder? And so they tend to want to pack in immense amount of detail to make sure that they're they're giving their baby, this design, the best shot of being executed effectively. So I say to the architect, let's cut out a big part of your deliverables because you know that I know how to do this, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's, there's an efficiency there that I try to, uh, that we try to introduce that so far I think it's worked well. There's also this constant pricing feedback because the painful thing is an architect designs something, you bring in builders, it's 40% over budget, the owners fall in love with it, and now you're like, wow, this is gonna hurt when I cut this out. Um, and so, you know, this kind of constant pricing feedback, which is not not unlike the kind of the pre-construction services agreement that a lot of custom builders do here, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's it's hopefully setting it up in a better start because we'll run all the due diligence, we'll know all of the costs of you know land and utilities and all those things, so we're starting with a much more informed uh, design process and the programming mm-hmm. is kind of more rigidly adhered to, right? right? Because we get to be the bad guy. And I call myself the wet blanket, right? Like I get to remind them every time, you know, hey, that's 30 more square feet than we talked about. And, um, you know, 
it's a little extreme, uh, you know, for the fact for the purpose of illustration. But there's just we find it's powerful to be able to to free the architect and the owner up to design and let us keep everything on the rails. It's this idea of changing the process. Um, you know, the the simple reality is that we as a culture have the tools and technology to deliver fantastic indoor environmental quality to our clients. We could optimize that at the best, you know, EUI, energy use intensity, which yeah. that would be the ultimate metric, like the best indoor environmental quality for the lowest energy use intensity. Yeah. Um, and yet the technologies exist. What doesn't exist? Societal will, societal yeah. knowledge, societal understanding to ask for that. And the processes in the industry to deliver that. And, you know, it's, so I, I know the realm you're in. You're in the high-end custom, high-end spec. These are big homes. These are luxurious homes. There's typically a lot of glazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have sat down, being the bad copy and the wet blanket guy, it's these crazy surreal moments where I almost want to laugh out loud. Like so I was at an architect's meeting not too long ago where the architect brought me in to meet with the client to design the mechanical system and the PV system. We also do PV design now. And um, so they said, so this client wants to be very sustainable. They want a high-performance home. And they're pulling up the Revit model while they're talking to me. And the client's at the table, like in my field of vision between me and the screen. So the screen comes up, and the first thing I see is almost an entirely glass and metal building with these big metal (laughs) I-beams going from the porch overhang straight across the living room. And the, and the client says to me, the first thing out of his mouth is, um, um, so how many kilowatts of, how big do you think our PV array needs to be, right? And, <laughs> and a typical PV array is like 6kW, maybe on a bigger house, 12kW. So I do some math on this in my head real quick, and, and I say, maybe 70? <laughs> Which I'm thinking, like, it's just so embarrassing, you know? And they go, oh, okay, yeah. okay, 70. So they just have no basis, right? And yet, somewhere all along the way, clearly the architect heard the client ask for a high-performance home. They wanted sustainability. But I guess the client also wanted glass and steel. So why was it that someone didn't... Can you answer this unanswerable question? Why is it that no one's willing to say, more glass means more energy use? It also is more expensive than me building you a wall. Um, Thermal comfort's going to go down. And I want to be very clear. I think key view moments are incredible. I think beauty is absolutely vital to a well-lived life. Yeah. So I'm not saying there shouldn't be no glass, but all glass? Right. Any thoughts on that? Uh, Yeah. You know, if you try to put yourself in the position of the architect, right, they've got a client sitting in their office that's telling them, we want this sculpture. And then at the same time, they're telling them, we want it to be energy efficient. And... An architect, if, if you kind of try to imagine all of the competing voices in their head at that moment, they're saying sculpture is architectural digest cover. This is exciting. And then they're saying this client, if I don't give this client a design that they love, they could go to another architecture firm and get what they want. Hmm. So I've got to I've got to meet that. And then, you know, at the then the other part of it is, okay, probably a good builder or mechanical designer or somehow we'll figure out some energy efficiency later, right? Yeah, and we can. Right, but... Then a bad system, it's more efficient, but it's still... Yeah, because then you're kind of behind the eight ball trying to catch up versus, you know, and trying to figure out how do we make this giant leaky thing, um, you know, energy efficient. And so I'm sympathetic with the architect in that, but that's also why it's so important to get the whole team in, right? Yeah. Because at that point... 
before we go down this this path of how do we save this leaky thing and make it, you know, kind of give lip service to energy efficient, the builder can be the wet blanket or the mechanical mm-hmm. engineer can be the wet blanket and say, listen, I know you love this thing, but this is this is counter to your other wish, which is energy efficient, right? So why don't we all sit here and think about how can we do something that's sculptural, that's amazing, but also sets it up for not just lip service to energy efficiency, but for true energy efficiency. Yeah, That's why I, I am so sold on design build. And whether it's the architect bringing me a client or me bringing an architect a client or whatever it is, get everybody in one room together, right? And let's all, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Everything looks like a, a I'm, I'm focusing on price and the architect's focusing on beauty and the mechanical guy. But if you all get, if you get the, the perspective from each side in one room together, you're going to end up where you want to be. I love it. Yeah, so it, we just had a meeting yesterday. In fact, something very small and tangible, though. There was a master bath, and there was a linen closet on the outside wall and a um, water closet on the inside wall, on a hallway. And they said, oh, we can repurpose this linen closet as a, as a mechanical. And we're like, can you also switch them and put the water closet on the outside wall? Because the mechanical needs to have access to the hall for return. Simple took one sentence and they said sure boom done yeah but uh, in the field once it's built once that four inch stack is up coming yeah. up you know it's like yeah. oh crap now what do you do yeah and it goes back to marketing right like what does green mean anything i, I build it against I spec it guys anything. and they're advertising that they have green homes or they have energy efficient homes and you look into what that what they're claiming in they're like oh it's got a radiant barrier and you're like, oh, that's total cavity yeah. fill. Oh, well done, you know. And, and and it's like organic food, you know. I mean, we go into the grocery store, and I, I try to like I, I'm looking for stuff to buy my girls, and it says, you know, it's like healthy, you know, zero grams of, and then it's like a tiny print added sugar, right? Added, and then they write sugar real big, and you know, it's just what does organic mean? And that's why I think you see this evolution. The food world has done a really good job of this, and you see this evolution from everyone wanted organic. And then organic became a mass-produced thing that lost its meaning. Mm -hmm. And so now they went to farm to table, right? And they're saying a big company that's stamping organic on their stuff, I don't trust them because I don't know what it means. So I'm going to go farm to table, right? I'm going to go to the source and I know no one's touching this before it gets to me because I don't trust the labels. And it's I think it's there's an effect. uh, There's something there in our industry too with energy efficient or with green it's it's not it doesn't mean anything anymore and buyers don't yet know that and so they go to whoever their 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 design professional is and they say something and there's a there's a desire behind it (laughs) but they're not able to communicate what that really means and so they're fully susceptible to a knowledge deficit that may result in them not getting what they want without them even knowing it, right? Well, mm-hmm. and it's really hard to, it's hard to know how to overcome that. You know, trying to, it goes back to like lead. The problem with, with something like lead is, okay, let's clearly define this, right? But then everyone figures out how to work the system, right? I mean, I think I could get lead bronze without ever actually doing anything, just like paperwork and, and ordering. And so... How do you how do you create something that defines it and it's a system, but that can't get worked? Yeah, it's it's not easy. And so no. again, it goes back to you gotta find good, great people that are knowledgeable, that have integrity, 
and that want what you want and that can get you what you want, right? It's not an easy thing to navigate. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's fascinating. It's, I think of you as a very thoughtful person, so I'll share this with you. I haven't known who to bring it up with. It's, it's this idea. So the food industry, there's a book called The Omnivore's Dilemma. Okay. I don't know if you've read it. It's Bill somebody. Um, fascinating book. We need to buy, write... That's uh, Michael. Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan, yeah. that's it. Yeah. We need to write The Home Buyer's Dilemma because... Yeah. You know, in the food industry, you actually have a few things going for you that you don't have. There's a lot of metaphor. I mean, a lot of uh, overlap in terms of the metaphor. But, you know, in the food industry, you are buying for your girls. And it's a short time frame. You're going to buy it and eat it within the next week or so. Yeah. So there's this short, short turnaround. It's also financially palatable to add $3 to a you know dozen eggs rather yeah. than... Um, but then, you know, so in the building industry, right, it's, it's long term, it's big picture thinking, we're not going to consume it personally, right? We might even sell it and move to a different one. But then the societal infrastructure is either impaired or enhanced, depending on our decisions forever. But the, here's the thing, the mortgage industry. And the Federal Reserve and the FDIC, like, these might be the, like, large immovable objects that don't let the building industry pivot. Yeah. Um, Well, to that point, try to go out and get a bank loan, a construction loan on something that's pushing the envelope when they're now legally required to go out and and, and do a competitive market analysis, right? And so I'm saying that home is going to cost me a million dollars to build, right? And they go around and they look at all the other homes in the neighborhood and they say, I mean, all the other homes cost 800,000, so we're not going to do this. What's wrong with you? Why, why, why can't you build a home like everything else? I've got HEPA filters right. and dehumidifiers. And it's no longer a judgment call. It's actually now legally mandated that they have, they be able to justify it by comps because, you know, the mortgage industry screwed up bad, right? Because of the appraiser. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so now, you know, there's, you're, you're absolutely right. There's a, there's a financial barrier to getting there. Um, if, unless you're willing to go out and get private money or, you know, unless you have private money. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so that is a big holdup. Um, and it, that, that one, you know, I, I'm a little insulated from it at my price point. That's what's really going to stop this from progressing downwards in the, in the, you know, cost spectrum. Right. Because, you know, a lot of my custom clients have cash um, a lot of my spec stuff, you know, it's uh, I'm able to get investors on it because it's a high enough price point that it makes it worth someone that has that kind of money to invest in. Uh, but man, down there at the tract home level, or even just move to a new market, we've literally lost a project out in San Angelo for this exact reason. There was no comps in the yeah. area that were even close to what they were trying to accomplish, and yeah. so they just said no, yeah. couldn't do it. So what you do is you start a bank. <laughs> that somehow, I don't know if you like don't have to become a member of the Federal Reserve or something that, that frees you from those requirements, right? And that bank lends towards, um, towards homes with this in mind um, and knows how to evaluate and appraise homes kind of uncoupled from the standard, you know, dollar per square foot metric. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you do really well. And then, you know, also like the longevity of those homes, right? Like if I'm going to do a 30-year mortgage, if I'm a bank and I'm going to give you a 30-year mortgage, knowing that the home was built with mm-hmm. durability and resilience and all of that in mind makes me a lot more confident in my 30-year investment than a home that is going to leak in 15 years or, you know, I mean, it's uh, there's, there's a definite um, market there. So if you have the money to start a bank, 
I would say <laughs> I will be your first customer. <laughs> Miguel, you got money to start a bank? <laughs> Not yet. You know, I, I think that's um, that's really well said. That it's a chicken and egg dilemma, and um, I think we should start getting toward wrapping up. So, some final thoughts. One of my final thoughts is, uh, you know, the the willingness that we have, and you know, the motivated willingness that we have to support high end projects is partly because better is better. Period, and we want to see good work done. We want to see what's possible get come to fruition, and it's also true that we have this logic construct that says, "Well, where did airbags enter the automobile industry? They entered, which are ubiquitous now, yeah, through high-end custom cars, yeah. and or maybe not custom cars, high-end cars, and then you know backup cameras, um, seatbelts, seatbelts, like tell tell the new flat screen TVs like a lot of these things that become consumer staples start at the high end is that just a logic construct is there some legitimacy what do you think I think it's where there's money to for innovators to innovate and people who are fine with being early adopters for something or trying something new willing to take they're, they're less risk averse because they have enough financial security to deal with it and then something winds up being really great People start taking notice through time, like with airbags, that got legislated after the fact because there everybody agreed that that was a very sensible thing to do because it had to do with human health and everybody was driving. So it starts as a good idea and then it becomes like code. Yeah, exactly. And you know, as the more we learn about indoor air quality and how it pertains to buildings, I caution that though. I think airbags and seatbelt. Well, yeah, airbags and seatbelt work because it's a specific thing, right? Mm. Like if the government just said it's a law, you have to make cars safer. That's kind of what we're dealing with here, right? Like, and, and building codes, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, they were kind of created to um, to set a floor. Like, this is the bare minimum. And they really, in most cases, produced a ceiling. Like, everyone just builds to code. Yeah, and, that's fascinating. Right. And, and, you know, so that there's a there's this perverse incentive that, that can often occur when you try to legislate something. And so if it was as simple as saying, you, do, you put this one product in every home, you put this airbag in every home mm-hmm. and it's going to be amazing. That's great. The government can do that and it works. But when it's something more complex Still and it's harder to quantify thing. and it's, you know, and it also like think about how much money Volkswagen spent to trick the EPA <laughs> versus just solving the damn problem. Right. Yeah. You think, okay, if, if we try to, that's the, that's the danger of the government. Right. What, what I would love as a libertarian, what I would love to see happen is, um, Volkswagen doesn't hit. Am I getting in trouble for naming a brand uh, negatively in this? Okay. No. Volkswagen doesn't hit um, the EPA requirements, or you know, they don't hit efficiency, and the market rejects their product and buys others, and they go bankrupt. That's, that's a signal to the market, right? Huh. That's my. That's what I would love. That's not what happens, and so the you know the government tries to legislate change, and then mm-hmm. it creates all kinds of unintended problems. What I would love for the building industry is um, that the building industry would demand healthy indoor air, that they would educate themselves on what that means so that they couldn't be tricked by people sticking, you know, yada yada in and saying this produces healthy air. And then that the people, the builders that don't go that route would go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Now, that is obviously a massive dream. So I think that the intermediate and the more achievable thing is we convince the market that the right way to build a home is to get the knowledgeable stakeholders in at the beginning, 
and set yourself up for success and let the mechanical engineer offset the bias of the architect towards beauty and let the architect offset the bias of the builder towards simple because it's affordable and fast mm-hmm. and let the, you know, and, and they all offset each other's biases and you get what you want, right? That's my dream. That was well said, man. Um, my last comment is going to be that, you know, my dream is that, the, the, like, the progression of building code, right or wrong, and I do agree that it's, it started as a floor and it's ended up as a ceiling. There was the, the, the motivation for code was, man, this massive fire shouldn't happen again, this loss of life. And so we had fire codes, which is the nascent stage of building code. And then we had structural codes. And then, of course, sanitary plumbing became a big issue because increased densification. And so this... This next step is going to be this home is actually a, a, a public health vehicle mm-hmm. to its benefit or detriment, and it should be recognized as such. But I, I actually am not sure that code is the right way. I agree with you that my strong preference, you know, in our investment in this podcast as part of it, is that people ask better questions, they come more informed. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate your point. It's the thing that got me wanting to record it. Your thing about the we don't, no one asked me when I bought my Honda, you know, what kind of tubing I wanted on my, right. you know, pollution control system. Yeah. They picked the best one for right. their functional output, functional outcome, and I have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know what's more powerful than code? is Yelp. <laughs> you, would, you wouldn't believe the fear that retail stores have of bad Yelp reviews. Wow. It's irrational. And it makes them... Um, it's, it's this visible accountability that is immensely impactful. And so I've wondered, right, like, let's say that, that building code didn't exist for the, the initial reason of fires, right? And, and builders were kind of called out on, he's not doing the things that will keep you from burning alive, right? <laughs> that would scare most builders into doing the right things, right? Yeah. So what if we had a Yelp? where there's a knowledgeable guy like yourself that gave builders a grade on oh, their man, indoor air that. quality, right? And then mm-hmm. a guy, a person that's looking at a home could go on there and say, oh, this guy is a D, and this other guy is an A, right? Then that's, that's the thing that will scare the D guys, like Yelp with retail stores. That's the thing that will scare the D guys into stepping their game up. Mm-hmm. Is there anything currently like a Yelp in the building trades? No, I mean, there's, you know, like Angie's List, there's Howl's, but, you know, Howl's is, you go Pretty and you pictures. read reviews and it's always like, oh, this is the most beautiful, you know, yeah. I love it. Or, you know, my, he, he gave me an iPad to move in with all my warranty documents on it instead yeah, of a... It's so sad, the lost opportunity right. with Howl's. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, there's definitely an opportunity to, to create something like that. TV shows, right? HGTV, it's visual. It, it treats a building as though it's a visual financial situation rather than the, this yeah. deeply immersive... The finishes of a building. Yeah. It the just, finishes, yeah, yeah. Just even the structure yeah. doesn't yeah. enter into it. There's no, there's no show on HGTV about, uh, man, this mechanical design was so bad, we're going to go and rescue it, right? Yeah, and there could be. There should be. You know, Corbett Lunsford was in town last week. He's, um, we interviewed him. That'll be coming out at some point. We, he's got a show on PBS, uh, you know, with blower doors and duck blasters talking about really? his performance. He's, he's a pilot episode. It's pilot season, I guess, is yep. set up. I'm really excited about that'd it. That'd be telling. Yeah. That'd be fun to see. See how that does. Yeah. yeah. Well, Ben, what a pleasure. Likewise, Truly. yeah. Any final thoughts? That was just a... No, I mean, I, you know, 
as always, it's fun to sit down and rap with you guys. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah. Take care. Thank you all for listening. All right, take care.